The Quintessential Persona by Leanna Smith I wake up to my alarm. I follow my schedule. Every situation is flawless. No mistakes. Each outcome is planned. No deviations. Every result is perfect. Mistakes are for the weak. The illusion, the anxiety, the need to be perfect. There is such a thing as perfection. I cannot make a mistake. This defines me. I wake up five minutes late. My schedule has to change. I drop my coffee. My day is ruined. I earn a B and a test. I am a failure. The illusion, the anxiety, the need to be perfect. There is such a thing as perfection. I cannot make a mistake. This defines me. My perfection makes me successful. Until it doesn't. No mistakes to learn from. No problems to solve, except the ones in my mind. Perfection can ruin a life not meant to be perfect. You and I are together in this great adventure, this podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics. We are journeying together. I am honored to be able to spend this time with you. I am Dr. Peter Malinowski, clinical psychologist, passionate Catholic, and together, you and I, we are taking on the tough topics that matter to you, the ones that are near and dear to your heart, the ones that keep you awake at night. Here on this podcast, we bring the best of psychology and human formation, and we harmonize it with the perennial truths of the Catholic faith. Interior Integration for Catholics is part of our broader outreach, Souls and Hearts, where we bring the best of psychology grounded in a Catholic worldview to you and the rest of the English-speaking world through our website, soulsandhearts.com. Now, let's get into answering these questions. The who, the what, the where, the when, the why, and the how of perfectionism. This is episode 85 of Interior Integration for Catholics. It's released on November 1st. 2021, All Saints Day, and it's called Perfectionism. Who, what, where, when, why, and how. Now, so many times, so many times, topics like perfectionism, there's no depth. We're not getting to primary causes. We're not getting to first causes, and that's what I want to bring to you. That's what I'm passionate about. Not just dealing with things at a symptom level, but going, going deep. So let's talk about perfectionism. Now, This is a major, major problem for so many Catholics. And if you haven't struggled with perfectionism yourself, you probably know several people who have. It's not just a major problem for us, though. It's a major problem across the English-speaking world. Thomas Kern and Andrew Hill in 2019 in a Psychological Bulletin article entitled Perfectionism is Increasing Over Time, a Meta-Analysis of Birth Cohort Differences from 1989 to 2016. They reviewed dozens of studies from this 27-year time span. All of these studies use the same instrument, the Multidimensional Perfectionism Scale by Hewitt and Flett, They had 164 study samples with more than 40,000 
1,000 college students in the U.S., Canada, and Great Britain, all again between 1989 and 2016. So they could look across more than a generation, right? And what they found is that the scores that these college students were, were, were recording on this instrument, which stayed the same during that 27 years, were going up. The scores for socially prescribed perfectionism or perceiving that others have excessive expectations of me, those increased by 33%. One generation, 33% increase in socially prescribed perfectionism or perceiving that others have excessive expectations. Up 16% were other-oriented expectations, that is, my putting unrealistic expectations on others, and self-oriented perfectionism, that's my desire to be perfect, up 10%. Today, we're going to get into the who of perfectionism, the what of perfectionism, the where, the when, the why, and the how, the who of perfectionism. We're going to talk about this in terms of parts. We're going to talk about it in terms of those little inner personalities that we have from an IFS perspective, as we do in this podcast. The what of perfectionism. What is perfectionism? What are the different kinds of perfectionism? And what are the different themes within perfectionism? We're going to get into all of that. Where does perfectionism come from within us? When does perfectionism get activated? Why does perfectionism start and how does it keep going? How do we overcome perfectionism? How do we resolve it? We don't want just a descriptive diagnosis, right? Something that just kind of tells us what's going on. We want a proscriptive conceptualization that gives a direction for healing. We want something that can resolve the, perf- the perfectionism by getting to its roots. We don't want to just stay at the symptom level. We don't want to just manage symptoms. Also, and this is so common with Catholics, we don't want to just, you know, sort of dismiss it and spiritually bypass by saying, oh, this perfectionism is just my cross. That's nonsense. Father Jacques Philippe, on page 75 of his excellent book, Searching for and Maintaining Peace, says, quote, perfectionism has little to do with sanctity, period, end quote. Perfectionism has little to do with sanctity. I 100% believe that. There are distortions of sanctity that happen in the parts of those of us that have struggled with perfectionism. There are real crosses that God gives us, yes, but those crosses fit well. They are custom made for us. The crosses we impose upon ourselves, like perfectionism, do not fit well. Right, so those of you that have been with the podcast for a while know how much I emphasize good definitions. We're going to start with the what. What is perfectionism? You know that I want precise definitions when we go into a deep dive on these difficult topics together. And I think it's ironic that there's a lot of unclear, sloppy, imperfect imprecise thinking about perfectionism by perfectionistic parts of us, right? I want to bring, I want to shine a bright, clear light on what's going on with perfectionism. So let's go to some definitions. I'm going to start with one by Brene Brown that I think is really good. This comes from her book, The Gifts of Imperfection. And Brene Brown tells us, quote, perfectionism is a self-destructive and addictive belief system that fuels the primary thought, if I look perfect, live perfectly, and do everything perfectly, I can avoid or minimize painful feelings or shame, judgment, and blame. 
perfectionism, self-destructive, addictive belief system, and it's all about this fantasy that if I achieve perfection, if I finally make it to that state of perfection, I can avoid or minimize painful feelings of shame, I can avoid judgment, I can avoid blame. But that is as unrealistic as the hamster on that little wheel in his cage being able to run a marathon. It's not going to happen. That wheel just spins. The hamster never gets any closer to his goal because perfection is not a realistic goal that we can achieve. The Carmelite author Mark Foley, he was the editor of Story of a Soul, the study edition, kind of takes a deep look at St. Teresa of Lisieux's work. He said, quote, There is an unhealthy striving for perfection, which psychologists call perfectionism. Perfectionism is the state of being driven to achieve a standard of perfection in an area of life that is fueled either by the fear of failure or the need for approval. This unhealthy striving is not the type of perfection to which God calls us, end quote. All right, so I can hear some objections coming up from some of your parts. I can hear some perfectionistic parts of you that might like to challenge me on this. You might have perfectionistic parts that could say something to me like, so, Dr. Peter, Mr. Catholic psychologists, and we know that psychologists are sort of questionable to begin with anyway, you know, but Mr. Catholic psychologist, you say you're Catholic, fine. You want us to have low standards, huh? You think it would be better for us to be lazy, to be weak, to take our ease, to give up the fight, to be mediocre, to be lukewarm, huh? Huh? Is that what you're saying? Didn't St. Jerome tell us, quote, good, better, best, never let it rest till your good is better and your better's best, end quote. Well, okay, I want, I want these, I want to be challenged by your perfectionistic parts. I want to take on those challenges because it's a legitimate question. Let's start. But first off, let's start with your quote. Now, that's often attributed to St. Jerome, but there's no evidence for it in any of his writings. Father Horton addressed this alleged quote on his blog, Fautations, on the September 26, 2016 post that he called Good, Better, Best, St. Jerome? Question mark. The oldest Google Books attribution of this quote is from 2009. So that's not very old. Uh, the 1904 Dictionary of Modern Proverbs has it. The 1897 Christian Work Illustrated Family Newspaper is the earliest recorded public uh, publication of that quote. A lot of other people attribute it to Tim Duncan, the NBA All-Star pray, player. You know, the one you guys remember him, right? The greatest power forward of all time. All right. This, first of all, was not attributed to St. Jerome. It doesn't sound like something he would say either. And let me be absolutely clear. I want you to pursue excellence. I want you to pursue sanctity. But perfectionism is not the same thing as striving for excellence. It's not the same thing as striving for sanctity. It's not the same thing as a commitment to self-improvement. There is a crucial distinction between striving for excellence and perfectionism. So let's take a minute and discuss what perfectionism is not. This is from Brene Brown again. Begin quote. Perfectionism is not self-improvement. 
perfectionism is at its core about trying to earn approval and acceptance. Most perfectionists were raised being praised for achievement and performance, grades, manners, rule following, people pleasing, appearance, sports, somewhere along the way, we adopted this dangerous and debilitating belief system. I am what I accomplish and how well I accomplish it. Please, period, perform, period, perfect, period. Healthy striving is self-focused. How can I improve? But perfectionism is other-focused. What will they think? End quote. What will they think? What will they think? That's what this is all about when we're dealing with perfectionism. It's all about what will others think? And Brene Brown also said in her book, Daring Greatly, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Love, Parent, and Lead, said, quote, Perfectionism is not the same thing as striving for excellence. Perfectionism is not about healthy achievement and growth. Perfectionism is a defensive move. It's the belief that if we do things perfectly and look perfect, we can minimize or avoid the pain of blame, judgment, and shame. End quote. That's what perfectionism is all about at its core. It's about minimizing or avoiding the pain of blame, judgment, and ultimately shame. And when we go on in a little bit, I'm going to talk about the critical role of shame. All right. So important to understand the role of shame. But before that, let's talk about a fascinating study that came out in the journal Assessment in 2012 by Agnes Stairs and her colleagues Smith, Zapolsky, Combs, and Settles. So what they did in this study is they gave 15 different perfectionism measures to 732 people. So they had these 15 different measures of perfection, They gave them to 732 people, and they did what's called a factor analysis. Now, I'm not going to get into all of the details of factor analysis, although I love factor analysis. I I could have had my PhD in applied quantitative psychology. I'm a quant guy. Love these kinds of studies because what factor analysis does is it searches for, it helps to identify the underlying conceptual structure The underlying structure of a concept, it helps us to figure out what kind of components exist within a concept. Okay, so in this case, the concept is perfectionism, and we're going to look at what are the components that make up perfectionism. And when they did this factor analytic study covering these 15 perfection measures, they looked at where different items loaded on different factors. They found nine different personality characteristics associated with perfectionism. Number one, need for order. Number two, the need for satisfaction of a job well done. Number three, details in checking. Number four, perfectionism toward others. Number five, high personal standards. Number six, black and white thinking about tasks. Number seven, perceived pressure from others. Number eight, dissatisfaction with personal performance. And number nine, reactivity to mistakes. Let's take a look at some of the items from these 15 different measures of perfectionism that loaded on these different factors. So on order, we saw items load on that factor that that were things like, I like things to be neat. Things should always be put away in their place. I like to be orderly in the way I do things. So this order component is prominent within perfectionism for some people, right? Second one, Satisfaction of a job well done. 
Items like, I feel satisfied with my work after I do something well. I get excited when I do a good job. I feel great satisfaction when I have perfected something. Oh, this deep sense of satisfaction for a job well done. I've got to get to the point where I know it's well done. Third one, details and checking. You get items like, I often check my work carefully to make sure there are no mistakes. Or it takes me a long time to do something because I check my work many times, right? So some of us are familiar with this checking behavior, right? These details, focus on the details, making sure there's nothing out of place, nothing wrong. Fourth one, perfectionism towards others. Items like, I have high standards for the people who are important to me. I expect a lot from my friends. I expect others to excel at whatever they do, right? So this is an outwardly oriented demand for perfection. Next one, number five, black and white thinking about tasks and activities. All right, so here's where we get to sort of all or nothing thinking. And it's items like, I will not do something if I cannot do it perfectly. There's no point in doing something if I cannot do it perfectly. There's another one. So you see there's all this behavioral inhibition because I might not be able to do it perfectly. So there's this black and white thinking. So number seven, perceived pressure from others. This is where we sort of reverse the previous one, and now others are placing pressure on us to be perfect. So it's things like, people expect high levels of performance from me. People expect me to be perfect. And I often feel that people make excessive demands on me. Number eight is the dissatisfaction with personal performance. And that one's more like this. It feels like my best is never good enough. I often don't live up to my own standards. I rarely feel that what I have done is good enough. And then finally, the last one is reactivity to mistakes. This accesses how we feel about having made mistakes. And items that loaded on this factor were things like, when I make a mistake, I feel really bad. Or if one thing goes wrong, I feel I cannot do anything right. Or I feel like a complete failure if I do not do something perfectly. Right. So you can see there are different dimensions to perfectionism. Right? Now, there are a number of places on the internet where you can find like the signs of being a perfectionist. Uh, one of the places was this goodtherapy.org article that was last updated on November 5th of 2019. It was pretty good. I mean, here's some, some basic things, right? If you're not able to perform a task unless you know you can do it perfectly, right? If you view the end product as the most important part of any undertaking, as a result, you may focus less on the process of learning or of completing a task, right? So there's a real focus on outcome instead of process. Third one, if you don't see tasks as finished until the result is perfect according to your own standards. The fourth one, procrastination. You procrastinate, right? You don't start doing a task unless you can know you can do it perfectly. And the fifth one is when you take an excessive amount of time to complete a task that doesn't typically take others nearly so long. So those are some signs that came from the goodtherapy.org article. That same article had some examples of perfectionistic behaviors just to kind of get you oriented to what we're talking about. Uh, spending 30 minutes Writing and rewriting a two-sentence email, okay, yeah? Believing that 
missing two points on a test is a sign of failure, difficulty being happy for others who are successful, holding oneself to the standards of others' accomplishments or, or comparing oneself unfavorably and unrealistically to others, skipping class or avoiding a chore because it is pointless to make an effort unless perfection can be achieved, focusing on the end product rather than on the process of learning, and avoiding playing a game or trying a new activity with friends for fear of being shown up as something less than perfect. In this section, in the what section, we discussed what is perfectionism. We went through a couple of definitions of that. We discussed the nine different factors or personality characteristics that make up perfectionism. We discussed the signs of being a perfectionist. We gave you some examples of perfectionistic behavior. That's the what. Now we're going to move on to the who. Let's talk about the who of perfectionism. And to do this, we have to discuss parts. So now we're getting back into some of these internal family systems concepts, this concept of parts. What are parts? Let's review that again. Parts are these separate, independently operating personalities within each of us. Each part has its own unique prominent needs, its role in our lives, its emotions, its body sensations, its guiding beliefs and assumptions, its typical thoughts, its intentions, its desires, its attitudes, its impulses, its interpersonal style, its own worldview. Robert Falconer calls these parts insiders. You can think of them as separate modes of operating, if that's helpful to you. And so when we take a look at perfectionism through an internal family systems or IFS lens, I'm gonna, I'm gonna consult here Jay Early. Jay Early is an IFS therapist and an author. And he had a chapter on perfectionism in his book, Self Therapy, Volume 3. In there, he discusses four types of perfectionist parts. Four types of perfectionist parts. So what are the four types of perfectionist parts? The first one, the not enough perfectionist. Number two, the creative block perfectionist. Number three, the control perfectionist. And number four, the inner critic. So let's go through these one by one. The not enough perfectionist, the creative block perfectionist, the control perfectionist, and the inner critic. The not enough perfectionist feels that you always must do more on your projects because your project is not good enough yet. This part impels you to work right up to deadlines, perfecting and re-perfecting everything. It's afraid to finish projects because this not enough perfectionist believes that when you turn it in, it will expose your shortcomings. It'll lead you to being judged. It will, it, it'll, it'll lead you to being ridiculed, right? The humiliation, that's what it's trying to avoid. That is the not enough perfectionist. A second type, the creative block perfectionist. So Jay Early says that this perfectionist part believes that things need to be perfect the first time. The first draft has to be the final draft. Your ideas, it, it worries that your ideas are not good enough. Again, it also feels being judged and rejected. And that is, again, very common, right? It's contradicted by Mike Littman. I really like this quote of his. He said, you don't have to get it right. You just have to get it going. This podcast is an example. When I started doing this podcast, I really didn't know what I was doing. The early episodes are very different than what I'm doing now. It's been a huge learning curve with this podcast. 
you know, and at the beginning, not very many people listened to this podcast. I had about one download per day on this podcast for the first oh, few months of this. Uh, one, two, maybe three people downloading. If I had 10 people downloading in a day, that was a big day in the early days of this podcast. I had a lot to learn, right? And if I had given in to perfectionistic thoughts of being not enough or it being creatively blocked, it would have never happened. All right, the third type is the control perfectionist. And this perfectionist believes, according to Jay Early, that the world must be perfectly in control and in order in order for things to be okay. This part believes I must always do the right thing. I must always make the right choice. And there's this huge emphasis on control, rigid control over behavior that saps your vitality and it obliterates the possibility of spontaneity. This part really needs predictability to feel safe. And then the fourth is the inner critic. This inner critic enforces the goals of being perfect. Right? This part judges and shames you about your work, your life, it judges and shames you about your spiritual practices, it labels you as stupid, incompetent, sloppy, inadequate, bad. This part has good intentions. It wants to help you it wants to help you avoid being judged or being shamed for your mistakes, but the way it goes about it is really destructive. And when parts are blended or when parts are disconnected from self, when they're not working under the governance of your core self, they always get what they don't want. They always wind up with the exact outcome that they're trying to avoid. When parts are not governed by the core self, when the intellect and the will and the, and is, is not being exercised by the self, but if, if you're being taken over by your passions, if you're being taken over by your parts, the very things that those parts don't want are the very things that happen, right? So in its efforts to keep you from being shamed and humiliated, the inner critic shames and humiliates you. There's an irony there uh, that is, is lost um, those parts of us, the inner critic. Jay Early goes on in his book, Freedom from Your Inner Critic, to identify seven different types of inner critics. Okay, so an inner critic is one of the parts that's active, that's active in perfectionism, and there's seven types of, of inner critics. And those are the perfectionist, the guilt tripper, the underminer, the destroyer, the molder, and the taskmaster, and the inner controller. So let's go through these, right? Perfectionist, guilt tripper, underminer, destroyer, molder, and taskmaster, and inner controller. This perfectionistic critic tries to get you to do things perfectly. It sets high standards for the things that you produce. It has difficulty saying that anything is complete and letting it go out to be evaluated by anybody else. It tries to make sure that you fit in, wants to make sure that you're not rejected, that you're not judged, that you're not found wanting. And its expectations probably reflect those of people who have been important to you in the past, people who you needed to engage, people that you needed to be in relationship with in the past. That's the perfectionistic inner critic. The guilt tripper. Now, this critic is stuck in the past. It's unable to forgive you for the wrongs you have done or the people that you have hurt. It's concerned about relationships. It holds you to very high standards of behavior prescribed to you by your community, by your culture, your family, by your faith. It tries to protect you from repeating past mistakes by making sure you never forget. By making sure you never forget. 
or that you never feel free, right? It's, that's what, how it's trying to help you. It's trying to make sure you never make the same mistake over again. But in doing so, it constantly burdens you with the experience of the original mistake. And so it brings about what it doesn't want. The third one is the underminer. Right? This critic tries to undermine your self-confidence and your self-esteem. And its positive intention is so that you won't take risks and you won't fail. Because failure is seen as devastating. It makes direct attacks on your self-worth. So that you'll stay small. So that you won't take chances. So that you'll be more like a wallflower. So that you don't put yourself out there where you could be hurt. You could be rejected. You could be judged. Right? And it's motivated by this belief that if you become too big or too visible, that you won't be able to tolerate the resulting judgment or failure. So it condemns you from the beginning. And so it undermines your self-confidence and, and, and cuts you down so that other people won't undermine your confidence and cut you down. But again, the result is the same. It got what it didn't want. The fourth one, the destroyer. This type of critic makes pervasive attacks on your fundamental self-worth, on your ontological being, right? It shames you. This is where that shame comes in. It makes you feel inherently flawed, not entitled to basic respect, to basic dignity. This is the most debilitating of the critics. And again, this comes from early life deprivations, comes from trauma, often complex trauma. And it's a motivated by a belief that it's safer not to exist. Right? So in order to protect you from being violated by others, of having your self-worth undermined, of having your self-worth destroyed by others, it's going to destroy your self-worth. Again, you see parts bringing about exactly what they don't want. The fifth one, the molder. Now, this critic tries to get you to fit into a certain mold, and that's based on standards held by your family or by your culture or by your society or by what that part believes the church expects or that God expects from you. It wants you to be liked and admired. It wants you to be included. It wants to protect you from being abandoned, shamed. It wants to protect you from being rejected. Uh, but the molder fears that other parts in you, like the rebel or the free spirit, if you went with those, if you got sort of spontaneous, those parts would act out in ways that are unacceptable to others. So it keeps you from being in touch with all other parts of you. It keeps you very conforming to the mold that it imagines other people have for you. And in that sense, compromises your sense of integrity of who you really are. The sixth one is the taskmaster. This, this, this critic wants you to be able to work really hard, wants you to be successful. And it's really working hard to keep you from being mediocre or being lazy or being judged a failure. It believes that you will become those things if it doesn't push you, if it doesn't force you into better levels of performance, if it doesn't keep you going, right? It, and it's pushing often, paradoxically, activates a procrastinator or a rebel that fights against the harsh dictates of the taskmaster. It evokes internal conflict and polarizations within the system in which it's operating. And then the seventh one, the inner controller. All right, this one, this one tries to control your impulses, impulses to eat, drink, sexual impulses, to shop, whatever the impulses are, right? It's polarized usually with an indulgent part, right? 
Often, this is what the dynamic that goes on in addictions, right? It doesn't want this indulgent part to get out of control. And it fears that it could get out of control at any moment. So it tends to be, this controller tends to be harsh. It tends to be shaming in this effort to protect you from destructive, addictive behaviors. It's motivated to try to make you a good person who is accepted and who functions well in society. So these are the seven types of inner critics that Jay Early discusses. And you can find a lot of his work on his website, personal-growth-programs.com. And he's also written a number of books, which are among the best books, if you want to understand IFS grounded in a secular anthropology, um, in terms of working on your own, kind of the self-therapy series. All right, I want to break this down, and I'm going to speak specifically about serious Catholics. All right, so I'm I'm going to be focusing on this very narrow population. Remember in the last in the last episode, I talked about how this whole podcast is targeted to 3,700 Catholics. Okay, so this is the 3,700 Catholics that I'm talking to right now. All right. In serious Catholics, there's a triumvirate of managers who govern the system if there is not sufficient self-energy, if there's not sufficient self-leadership, all right? If our core self is not governing the passions, if the core self doesn't have, you know, the, the sort of main access to the intellect and the will, this is what happens when we could be functioning fairly well, right? We look good on the outside, um, but actually we're not being... Uh, what IFS would say self-led, what I would say would be more like naturally recollected. So this triumvirate of managers, triumvirate, let's, let's actually get into that a little bit. Uh, triumvirum, right? That's the genitive plural of tres viri, which means in Latin three men, right? Tres, three. Viri is the plural of vir, which is man. Three men. And a triumvirate is a group of three men that hold power, so, for example, the first triumvirate in ancient Rome was this unofficial coalition of Julius Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus in 60 BC. Second triumvirate, some of you history buffs would know, would be the coalition formed in 43 BC between Antony, Lepidus, and Octavian, right? And the triumvirate is these three roles. It may or may not be three parts, but it's three roles taken on by parts, and the three roles, which often correspond to three parts, are the standard bearer, the primary manager, and the inner critic. Again, remember, I'm talking about Catholics here, Catholics who take the faith seriously. Also, remember, my assumption is that most people are blended most of the time. In fact, almost all people are blended almost all of the time. I think it's relatively rare for somebody to be really recollected at a natural level to be really what IFS would say self-led. And most of the time with reasonably well-functioning people, that blend is with managers. And remember, managers are the parts of us who run our systems in such a way as to proactively minimize our exiles being activated and breaking through. Managers handle the day-to-day activities, and many of these managers are very, very competent. They're very good at what they do. They're very efficient. They're very effective. They work strategically. They use forethought. They use planning to take control of relationships, to take control of situations, to minimize the likelihood of us being hurt. They work really hard to keep us safe. They control, they strive, they plan, they engage in caretaking, judging. They can also be kind of pessimistic and self-critical and very demanding. And that's what we're going to see with 
perfectionism. So the three major roles that we see in perfectionism, the standard bearer, the primary manager, and the internal critic. Okay, so let's get into the role of the standard bearer, the part in the role of the standard bearer. In order to do that, let's start with what the definition is of a standard. And when I'm talking about a standard, I'm talking like a standard for a military unit. And this is from Wikipedia. A military standard is a bright, colorful flag acting as a strong visual beacon to the soldiers of the unit. Now, it doesn't always have to be a flag. For example, the standard for a Roman legion was their aquila, their eagle. The standard of the Roman legion, the eagle, had a quasi-religious importance to the Roman soldier. It went far beyond merely being a symbol of his legion. And to lose a standard for a Roman legion, that was extremely grave. The Roman military went to great lengths, both to protect their eagles and to recover their eagles if they were ever lost. Right Now, when we look at these standards that the standard bearer holds, is the standard a deep and loving relationship with God? Nope, it's not. Is the standard... The close, intimate relationship with Mother Mary? Uh, No, not exactly. The standard that the standard bearer carries aloft can vary, but it's the unwritten list of rules and expectations that the standard bearer has come up with by his or her own limited vision. Whatever those expectations are, whatever those rules are, whatever those guidelines, whatever, they're not really guidelines, they're stronger than guidelines, they're really rules and expectations. And those standards are the code of conduct that the standard bearer wishes to impose on all the parts. And those standards can be quite unreasonable, especially in extreme cases of perfectionism, especially in scrupulosity. Now, that standard also needs to be interpreted, and other parts are not deemed capable of deciphering the standard. Oh, no, 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 no. Who needs to decipher and interpret the standard? That's right. You've got it. The standard bearer. In the tripartite Freudian model of the mind, the standard bearer corresponds to the superego. The standard bearer wants to act in the role of conscience giving directives to the system. Why? Again, to keep us safe and secure. That's the goal. The standard bearer wants to keep us safe from internal enemies, such as our exiles with their burdens, especially shame. The exiles with their burdens are Freud's id in his tripartite model, and our external enemies, right? Or the external people, persons that could hurt us the ones who could shame us, the ones that could embarrass or humiliate us, the ones that could harm us in some way. And those could be either in the natural realm or the supernatural realm. And the standard bearer does all of this to keep us safe. But the problem is, as with any part who's operating in a freelancing way, operating with its own autonomy, the standard bearer always brings about what he doesn't want. So there's always a loss of safety, a loss of security, even though that's what that part is striving for. So in my system, good boy 
is my standard bearer. Now, if you go all the way back to episode 71 of this podcast, A New and Better Way of Understanding Myself and Others, I introduced you to all of my parts. And good boy is my standard bearer. If good boy is blended with me, now that's the key. If he's blended with me, if he takes over with other managers, good boy will lapse into this role of being the standard bearer in my system and he can impose unrealistically high expectations for me. Now, when he's not blended, he's not like that. He is a part of me that really helps with moral decision-making But the difference is under the governance of the self, right? So I'm not caught up in the particular way that that one part, good boy, looks at the world. That's the first of the three manager parts that blend with serious Catholics, right? The second one is the primary manager. This is a part that blends and is in charge almost all the time in fairly well-adjusted people. When there seems to be a consistent single, quote, personality, end quote, you are usually seeing what I call the primary manager part. And this part can have a lot of self-energy, and it can only blend to a certain degree, not necessarily all the way. But nevertheless, when it's blended, it may believe that it is essentially the self and that it needs to function in the role of the self. And this is because the primary manager doesn't trust the self. That could be it. A lot of times people have never really been in self. That's actually, I think, the most common state of affairs for us in our fallen human condition. Or it can forget that the self is capable of governing the system effectively and, in fact, is the one within us who's really most suited for that role. Or it can get caught up when exiles are activated and react. In my system, collaborator, formerly the competent one, is my primary manager. And again, I talked a lot about collaborator in episode 71. All right, so the third part of the triumvirate, remember we've got the standard bearer, we've got the primary manager, and the third one in the triumvirate, uh, when there's perfectionism, is the inner critic the inner critic. And remember those inner critics, they're all about evaluating how we're doing. They're all about performance. I used to have an inner critic part. Now I call that part of me the evaluator. Uh, And what happens in my system, and I think this is fairly common, is that the standard bearer is insulated against the unreasonableness of the demands. The standard bearer isn't the one that actually has to execute against those demands, right? That's the job of the primary manager. And the standard bearer also isn't the one that has to get his hands dirty with evaluating, right? That's the job of the inner critic. That allows the standard bearer to remain in an ivory tower, to remain disconnected from the real world implications, the real psychological and emotional implications of the unrealistically hard standards that he, that, that he or she can impose on the system. And so that lack of perspective is something that is characteristic of blended standard bearer parts. They just don't see how much harm that causes to other parts in the system, particularly the primary manager, and also all the exiles who, because of the perfectionistic standard bearer's 
impulses to suppress and repress and deny them from any kind of expression, they go with their needs not being met. Right? So in this role of inner critic, right, the part that has that inner critic role is going to be the one that rides the primary manager. Now, in some systems, the primary manager and the inner critic are the same part that can be those two roles can be combined in the same part. So there's a part that actually has a lot of conflict about how well it's doing in its role of governing the system of replacing the self because that never ever works. So my internal critic, my inner critic, I grew up in Wisconsin and I remember being a little kid and there are a lot of farms in Wisconsin, a lot of dairy farms. And we would ride around in the back roads and I would take a look at all these farms. I didn't grow up in a farm, but you know, I would look at these farms and, I, and that internal critic would say, if I ever had a farm, I would keep it much neater and much tidier than these farmers are keeping their farms. I mean, look at this. The barn's unpainted. There's a, you know, there's, there's a you know, old implements left in the yard, very untidy, very unseemly, right? It's very critical. I remember myself being very critical of these farmers back when I was riding around as a kid. Now, I have a farm. (laughs) I have a farm now, and I have radically different views. I never painted my barn. My barn goes unpainted. You know, there's stuff, implements out in my yard. And so I have an entirely different perspective right, on how things ought to be done. I understand at a much deeper level why things are like, they are like they are on the farm. There's so many things that need to be done that take priority. So this is from my parts. I just want to give you some, some, some quotes from my parts. And I'm going to riff off a little bit of episode 71. But my standard bearer, which is my goodbye part, that part says that when I'm blended, This is my good boy part. When I'm blended and have taken over the self, I set the standards. I speak for God when I'm in in that position. I'm in the role of the standard bearer. That's the good boy part. And my evaluator part, which is my inner critic, right? When I'm blended, I shield good boy from the unreasonableness of his demands. I goad collaborator. I press him on for ever better performance. So that's what happens when my evaluator part is blended, takes on the role of that inner critic when he's blended with me. When he's not blended, there's not a problem there. My collaborator part, formerly my competent part, that's my primary manager, he says this, I am the workhorse. I execute. I try to make it all happen. And in Freud's tripartite model, the primary manager serves kind of like in the role of the ego, right? trying to navigate the demands of reality on the one hand and of the standard bearer on the other hand. I also have my rebellious part, my rebel, right, who now is my challenger part. And when I get overworked because I'm getting all perfectionistic because these three parts have blended and they've taken over and they're pushing and pushing and pushing, My rebel part says, I'm a firefighter. I get angry. I rebel against the triumvirate of managers. And then it's YouTube time, right? Then I shut down. This part can take over. It impels me not to do any more work 
but to veg out in front of YouTube, right? So that's what can happen when the firefighters rebel, right? Or you can have different kinds of rebellion. You can have shutting down. You can have all kinds of reactions because usually the firefighters and the exiles don't rally to the standard bearer standards. They just don't rally to that standard, right? So there's this polarization between the managers, between the triumvirate of governing managers when they're blended and, and the rest of the system, especially firefighters and exiles, right? So this backlash when exiles jailbreak and they want to take over because they know their needs are not going to be met in the way that the, and the, way that the triumvirate is operating or when firefighters react, right? Because they sense the exiles are coming up and they're trying to distract from the intensity of the pain and the distress and the anger and the frustration and the, and the sadness and the disappointment and the shame. Well, these polarizations happen. This infighting happens. So let's get into where perfectionism comes from. This is the where. All right, so we've covered the what and the who and now we're getting into the where. Where does perfectionism come from? And I want to be really clear about this. Perfectionism is a symptom. It's an effect of a deeper issue. Perfectionism is still a problem in and of itself, just like a fever of 106 degrees is a symptom, but it's still a problem in and of itself. It doesn't mean it's not a problem, but perfectionism is a symptom. What does it represent? Well, let's take a look at what the secular experts have to say. Let's go back to Curran and Hall. They're the ones that saw how perfectionism was increasing among college students between 1989 and 2016. What did they say? They say, quote, Our findings suggest that self-oriented perfectionism, socially prescribed perfectionism, and other oriented perfectionism have increased over the last 27 years. We we speculate that this may be because generally American, Canadian, and British cultures have become more individualistic, more materialistic, more socially antagonistic over this period, with young people now facing more competitive environments, more unrealistic expectations, and more anxious and controlling parents than generations before, end quote. Okay, so they're basically arguing more individualistic culture, more materialistic culture, more socially antagonistic culture. Okay, all right, that makes sense. Well, let's take a look at a quote from Pete Walker, who is addressing where perfectionism comes from. He says, quote, perfectionism is the unparalleled defense for emotionally abandoned children. The existential unattainability of perfection saves the child from giving up unless or until scant success forces him to retreat into the depression of a dissociative disorder or launches him hyperactively into an incipient conduct disorder. Perfectionism also provides a sense of meaning and direction for the powerless and unsupported child in the guise of self-control striving to be perfect offers a simulcrum of a sense of control. Self-control is also safer to pursue because abandoning parents typically reserve their severest punishment for children who are vocal about their negligence, end quote. All right, so there we've got a developmental perspective. It has to do with emotionally abandoned children, children whose sense of ontological goodness was not supported by their parents. And even though Pete Walker doesn't use the word, 
you can read between the lines of what he said and see shame. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But before that, we're going to talk about what Jay Early says causes perfectionism. He's got two major things that he says cause perfectionism. One is fear, and the other is the need for others' approval. There's a couple of quotes I think that are interesting. This is from Marie Forleo from the book Everything is Figureoutable. And she says, quote, perfection at its core isn't about high standards. It's about fear. Fear of failure. Fear of looking stupid. Fear of making a mistake. Fear of being judged, criticized, and ridiculed. It's the fear that one simple fact might be true. You're just not good enough. End quote. And along the same lines, Michael Law writes, begin quote, at its root, perfectionism isn't really about a deep love of being meticulous. It's about fear, fear of making a mistake, fear of disappointing others, fear of failure, fear of success, end quote. Again, you can start to see that yes, fear, and yes, there's this need for approval, but again, I'm always asking the question, why? I mean, fear is always an emotional response, right? This need for approval, it comes from somewhere. Where, where does that come from? I'm going to make the argument that it comes from shame. Shame, this deep sense of fundamental inadequacy, this deep sense of not being lovable, it's being essentially flawed, being bad, right? Being unworthy. And we did a whole 13-episode series on shame, episodes 37 to 49 of this podcast, all about shame. If you want to know what actually is the first cause in the natural realm of perfectionism, you can trace it right back to shame. And even in these other uh, these other formulations that we're getting from these secular from these secular authors, you see that you can read shame between the lines. When they talk about you know, when they talk about the need for approval, when they talk about fear, why? Why? Well, it goes back to that fundamental sense of not being loved, not being good enough, and that is all bound up, ladies and gentlemen. That is all bound up in original sin in our fallen human condition fallen, fallen human condition. And so let's talk a little bit about the when. And so we have covered the what, the who, and the where, and now we're going to cover the when of perfectionism. When does perfectionism get activated? Well, some people are pretty chronically perfectionistic. This triumvirate of parts, the standard bearer, the inner critic, and the primary manager, they are pretty much operating all the time, right? They're pretty much operating all the time. So the perfectionism is operating pretty much all the time. So the when for those folks is pretty much all the time. And some of us have more episodic episodes of perfectionism, all right? So in other words, it happens some of the time. And that's when situational factors, things that are going on in the present moment around us, either outside of us or within our own systems, are activating the exiles that drive this kind of response. And so that usually has something to do 
with shame. Now, sometimes we don't actually feel the shame. The shame is too deeply buried. The exile hasn't broken through. And we're actually going to experience it as more of a need for approval. We're going to experience it more as fear or anxiety. You know, these processes can have this really automatic perspective to it. But for a lot of people, that is some of the time. Okay. All right, let's go to the why now. Why does it keep going? Well, I'll tell you why it keeps going. is because the underlying shame doesn't get addressed. That's why, that's why I think you didn't get to the root cause, right? As long as we have these deep beliefs that we're unacceptable, that we are unlovable, that we're inadequate, that we're unworthy, we're going to suffer from shame. And I'm assuming when I say these sorts of things that we don't, we're not aware of our actual human condition vis-a-vis God because we're in a deep and abiding and loving relationship with him. I'm not talking about that right now. We'll, get it, we'll actually get into that a little bit more in the next episode. All right, so why the sense that I'm unacceptable right now, right? I have to engage in a self-improvement program, right? That's what these parts take away from their experiences, right? It's not just taught usually... You know, the parents don't say something as direct as you're unworthy and you are ontologically bad. They usually don't communicate it that way to the child. And a lot of times that's not, I mean, most of the time that's not their intention at all, right? But remember, little ones will construe things through the prism, through the lens of their kind of the way that they see the world. So there can be a lot of magical thinking in the way that two-year-olds, three-year-olds, 18 months old make sense of their experience. Right? Remember what we were talking about, that the potential to become good enough to earn the love that I need, that provides hope in the future, at least in the short run. But in the long run, It's a dead end. It's like that hamster on the wheel. And like we talked about before, it breeds rebellion and acting out. Firefighters likely to get active, right? Perfectionistic parts always get what they don't want. When perfectionism is operative, we always wind up being alienated, isolated, and alone. And there's this quote from Glennon Doyle Melton who says, quote, we can choose to be perfect and admired or to be real and loved, end quote. I just love that quote, right? We can choose to be perfect and admired or to be real and loved. And Z. Frank has this salty quote, which goes like this. Begin quote. Perfectionism may look good in his shiny shoes, but he's a bit of an asshole and no one invites him to their pool parties, end quote. All right, so we've covered the why. We've gone through the the what, the who, the where, the when, and the why. That leaves us the how. How do we overcome perfectionism? So let's take a look at what the standard advice is out there. What's the standard advice for overcoming perfectionism? All right, well, most of it, again, focuses on symptoms, right? Here's, here's a list of 10 recommendations, 10 tips from Oregon Counseling on how to overcome perfectionism. What? Number one, become more aware of your tendencies towards perfectionism. Number two, focus on the positives. Okay. Number three, allow yourself to make mistakes. Mm. Number four, set more reasonable goals. Number five, learn how to receive criticism. Yeah. 
Number six, lower the pressure you put on yourself. Number seven, focus on meaning over perfection. Number eight, try not to procrastinate. Number nine, cut out negative influences. And number 10, go to therapy. All right, here's a few more that Sharon Martin, who is an LCSW in California, she adds these, practice self-compassion, adopt a growth mindset. Instead of focusing on outcomes, enjoy the process. Be true to yourself rather than trying to please everyone. Be more assertive with your own needs and love your imperfect self. And then one more set of these, uh, Tanya Peterson uh, on the website choosingtherapy.com, she says this. These are her tips for perfectionists. Keep track of your thoughts. Practice mindfulness. Focus on your strengths. Stop comparing yourself to others. Find your own meaning and purpose. Rekindle your sense of pleasure and gratitude. Think about your life at age 100 and let yourself experiment. Okay. All right. So these are almost all symptom-based approaches. I, I look at these as being very superficial. They're not likely to get to the root cause. They sound good, but these kinds of approaches are hard to accomplish because of the perfectionism itself and because of what's driving the perfectionism, right? Thinking about your life at age 100 is not going to overcome a deep sense of ontological badness and being, and being unlovable. It's just, it's just not going to do it, right? So I want to get into two major types of approaches that therapies take towards perfectionism, and especially therapies that focus on parts or that focus on the perfectionism as sort of an entity within the self. The first major type of approach towards perfectionism is to treat perfectionism as an enemy, to treat it as an adversary, to treat it as an opponent that needs to be dismissed, that needs to be fought against, that needs to be overcome, or maybe needs to be ignored, right? Maybe needs to be simply driven away outside of consciousness, right? And some examples of these approaches include Byron Brown's uh, approach based on the Diamond approach in his 1999 book, Souls Without Shame, Robert Firestone and his colleagues in their voice therapy approach in the book, Conquer Your Inner Critical Voice. You can actually see that word, conquer, conquer your inner critical voice, right? Robert Firestone. Rick Carson in his 1983 book, Taming Your Gremlin, has got, again, the same kind of approach. How do we suppress, how do we conquer, how do we overcome the perfectionistic elements within ourselves? This is by far the approach that most serious Catholics favor in dealing with perfectionism and scrupulosity. Like, they like that willpower. They like that suppression, right? The domination over the undesirable internal experience. The triumph of the will. They can see the victory. It's not far from their grasp if they can only suppress these other parts. Right? There's this element of domination. And I would argue that as a psychologist of 20 years working with Catholics who have got perfectionistic tendencies, this kind of approach, um, it can look good on paper, but it's got a a, a one primary flaw, 
The one primary flaw that I think this approach has is that it never works. It's got another primary flaw and that it's extremely hard on the person's system and it doesn't help the person's system to experience the love that's needed in order to overcome the shame. In other words, the love from the self, right? Because there's a lot of self-hatred in these kind of approaches because these are parts of us, right? When a perfectionist is dealing with perfectionism, the parts the parts that carry that perfectionism, that's part of them. And when there is this violence done to those parts, it is the opposite of loving those parts. All right, so... Another broad, uh, another broad way of approaching this is to treat perfectionism as an ally, to be seen, heard, to be accepted, to be befriended, to be understood, and ultimately transformed into something much more helpful, something much better for the person. Right? This is the approach of Hal and Sidra Stone, based on voice dialogue stuff in their 1993 book, Embrace Your Inner Critic, Turning Self-Criticism into a Creative Asset. This is the approach of Jay Early and Bonnie Weiss, based on internal family systems in their 2010 book, Self-Therapy for Your Inner Critic, Transforming Self-Criticism into Self-Confidence. This is the approach of Anne Weiser Cornell, based on inner relationship focusing. That's in her 2005 book, The Radical Acceptance of Everything. It's the approach of Pat Allen in her 1995 book, Art is a Way of Knowing. These approaches see the inner critic. These approaches see the inner standard bearer. These approaches see the primary manager as trying to help, trying to protect, but in a covert or distorted or somehow maladaptive way. And this, this perspective, if we actually look at these parts as trying to help, as having good intentions, right, that perspective makes it possible to connect with these parts that are engaged in this perfectionism and to transform those parts over time into helpful allies. We gotta get to the root though. The episode's 37 to 49. I can't stress that enough about how much this is driven by shame. The problem with so much treatment of this is that it tends to deal with just the superficial symptoms. You know, the managers that run the system don't actually want to go to depth. That's the last thing they want to do. They don't want there to be access to excels. They don't want the shame to be brought up because that's the thing that they fear is going to kill you. Yeah, that's, that's the reason. That's the reason it's so threatening to get to the level of the shame. And they don't understand that there are ways to do that that don't involve being overwhelmed because their experience of shame in the past is that when it comes up, man, it comes like a tidal wave, totally is going to blow us away. We cannot have that happen ever again. What they don't realize is that exiles can titrate. They can hold the intensity of their affect if they believe that it's actually going to be addressed. There's a way to work collaboratively and cooperatively with the parts in your system. I want to bring in some of Dan Siegel's interpersonal neurobiology here. Um, 
And what he argues is that we have these neural networks. And so these parts actually have neurological complements. They actually exist, in a sense, with correlates in the brain. When parts are active, you see different parts of the brain firing, different patterns of neuronal activity, which makes sense because we're embodied beings, right? There's not this, this uh, sharp divide between our biology and our internal phenomenology, right? our internal experience. And so when you look at these two major approaches, the approach where perfectionism is an enemy to be ignored, dismissed, fought against, to be overcome, to be suppressed, right, to be conquered, is basically focused on building a second superimposed alternative neural network, a different network of neurons firing that fires faster and harder and suppresses the original perfectionistic network, right? And so in other words, you're bringing in more sort of inner electrical activity in the brain and the patterns that seem more desirable. And that neural network, in a sense, electrically shouts out, suppresses the original perfectionistic neural network. Okay, that's how that first approach where perfectionism is treated as an enemy to be suppressed, that's how that works. In the treating perfectionism as an ally approach, which is where IFS lines up, you actually don't create a second neural network. You change the original neural network. You actually totally readjust the original neural network. And so IFS is a brain-based psychotherapy that's designed to access and modify these neural networks through intentional interactions, right? We do this deliberately in IFS. These brain-based interactions are the key to actually rewiring the brain. We're not laying another set of cables. We're not laying another network of electrical connections and then having these two neural networks battle it out, right? That leads to a sense of constant tension, right? We actually want to resolve the miswiring and the original neural network and just have one neural network. And so that's it. That's, that's what we've got. That's the how. So we have covered... The what, the who, the where, the when, the why, and the how of perfectionism. And I've stayed largely in the secular realm. I've stayed largely in the secular realm with this particular podcast. I want to know what you think. I want to know what you thought of this episode. Call me or text me, 317-567-9594. You can email me, you can email me at crisis at soulsandhearts.com. If you, if you have found great resources that were helpful for your perfectionism or for your, for your scrupulosity as a Catholic, let me know. I really want to hear about them. Let me know them, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to take a look at them, right? Because in the next episode, episode 86, that's going to come out on November 1st, right? The new episodes always come out on the first Monday of the month. So that's November 1st, All Saints Day. We're going to get into scrupulosity. Now, scrupulosity, I have such a different take than almost anybody else in the Catholic world on scrupulosity. Scrupulosity is what happens when perfectionism gets religion. Scrupulosity is what happens when perfectionism gets religion. And there's, there's an element that we have not discussed very much in scrupulosity that is not as evident with 
perfectionism. There's some differences between scrupulosity and perfectionism. And we are going to get into that. We're going to get into it specifically in how it plays out for so many Catholics. That's episode 86. The other thing is, I'm going to get into my own battle with scrupulosity. This is something that I was intimately acquainted with. I'm going to talk with you about that. I remember Grandpa Roberts. You know, Grandpa Roberts saying to me, God helps those who help themselves, right? All right, that was one of the sayings that Grandpa Roberts would say. And we'll talk about how that factored into scrupulosity. Today, we laid a foundation for understanding perfectionism. Next episode, episode 86, we're going to get much more into scrupulosity, and we're going to get much more into the solutions for scrupulosity and perfectionism grounded in the Catholic anthropology and formed by internal family systems. Now, remember, as a listener to the Interior Integration for Catholics podcast, you can call me on my cell any you can call me on my cell phone any Tuesday or Thursday from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. I've set that time aside for you. Eight hours a month I've set aside for you so that you can call me, 317-567-9594. Um, and I ask you to try to keep the calls to 10, maybe 15 minutes so that other people can call. Sometimes it gets pretty busy during those times. Uh, you can also always email me at crisisatsoulsandhearts.com. Again, if you send me a really long email, I'm going to tell you, call me, right? Uh, because it's hard for me to really to respond to really long emails. All right. I want to talk with you briefly about the Resilient Catholics community. We have 84 people, 84 of you listeners on the waiting list to join the Resilient Catholics community in on in December. That's when we're going to reopen the community. Now, I did a pretty long discussion of the Resilient Catholics community in the last episode, episode 84. So you can go back to that if you want to hear more about it. But I want to, I want to say is that we have been working through the individual results sheets for dozens of RCC members and dozens of applicants to the RCC. And they are amazed at how our initial measures kits can provoke all kinds of new thinking about their parts, because that's what we do with that initial measures kit. We really are bringing out like what we think might be going on in your system, what your parts might be. We usually identify between seven and 10 parts for people. And it's all hypothetical, right? We're sort of bringing those out. And not only which, what the parts are, but how are they interacting? How are they polarizing? How are they in conflict? How are they aligned? So if you're really interested in internal family systems, you really love this podcast, you really want to be with me and with other Catholics really working on human formation, check out soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. That's the landing page for the Resilient Catholics community. We work with Catholic standard bearers. We work with primary managers. We work with inner critics. We work with all kinds of parts in the Resilient Catholics community. It's not therapy. It's human formation. All right, one more thing, Catholic therapists or therapists in training, if you are really interested in internal family systems and you want to be with me and other Catholic therapists working on your own human formation with your colleagues on a pilgrimage together, the interior therapist community is for you. We have a couple more slots open in our last Foundations Experiential Group for the fall of 2021. Check that out soulsandhearts.com backslash ITC. That's the landing page for the interior therapist community, soulsandhearts.com backslash ITC. We had a really great response to our Foundations Experiential Group's 
uh, to our offerings in the fall. Super excited. We've got 24 already locked in. We have another five or six that want to be in a group. We're trying to find time. So make sure you get to me as soon as you possibly can. We're going to close down that registration on October 8th. So I want you guys to, to make sure you can take advantage of that. Okay. Well, this has been a long episode. It's not surprising because it's been such a long time since I connected with you. Uh, We've gone to this monthly schedule. I want to let you know how much I appreciate you. You're the reason that I do these podcasts. It's for you, the listeners. I really feel called to give this to you. Really feel excited that you uh, and I can walk together through these kind of topics. So add so much meaning and so much joy to my life and so much of a sense of direction. So many great comments from people coming in. I really appreciate the feedback and I really appreciate any critical feedback as well, constructive feedback to make this podcast even better. So With that note of gratitude, with that note of appreciation for you, I want to to give praise to Almighty God and and to ask for the intercession of Our Lady and to ask for the intercession of our patron, John the Baptist. And so here we go with that as we always close our, 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 our time together in these podcast episodes. Our Lady, our Mother, untire of knots, pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us.